Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. People sometimes ask about the big picture of our work. Why do we present these programs? The answer is we're trying to cultivate a more cohesive sense of community. And our vision of community is based on personal ideals and values, such as compassion, generosity, equality, and civility. We aim to serve the large and growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. And we strive to shed light on solutions, not just problems. If you resonate with this vision, you can support us at humanmedia.org and click How You Can Help at the top of our homepage. Thank you. This Humankind special, Justice Denied, is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. Lincoln said in one of his speeches, if we allow nine justices to determine our national policy, we are no longer a democracy. How an extreme ruling by the Supreme Court helped push the United States closer to civil war. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. It's often described as the worst decision ever handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court. It was the only time in American history when a justice resigned from the court in apparent disgust at a ruling by his colleagues. It prompted numerous proposals that the Supreme Court be abolished, and it greatly inflamed America in the tense period leading up to the Civil War. It was the case of a black slave in Missouri named Dred Scott, and the chances of a fair hearing for his lawsuit seeking freedom were slim in an era when racial prejudice pervaded the country north and south. In the south, the central institution of southern life, that is slavery, was founded in part on the idea of the racial inferiority of black people, and a whole ideology defending that notion had developed in the South. Columbia University historian Eric Foner. But certainly one should not assume the North was uh, necessarily very forward-looking, moralistic. The North had abolished slavery by this time, uh, but there were very few free Negroes in the North, maybe 220,000 at the time of the Civil War out of about 23 million, so less than 1% of the Northern population were black people. And they were subject to many, many forms of discrimination in every aspect of their lives. Uh, basically, they were a kind of an unwanted population. They were there. There was a fairly large movement called the Colonization Society devoted to getting them out of the country, sending them to Africa or Central America. Most blacks did not want to leave, however. Only five states in the North allowed black men to vote. Most of them didn't. Uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois did not allow black men to vote. Uh, many states barred them from public schools. There were even some states in the north, Indiana, Illinois, which had laws on the books barring free black people from even entering the state. Uh, so there was deep racism in the northern states as well. On the other hand, there was also, not that large but very vocal, the abolitionist movement, which advocated not only ending slavery but 
genuine equality, political equality, legal equality, equality of opportunity for black people. And they were putting forward an alternative perspective on America as not a white society, but a multiracial society. When the 13 original colonies founded the United States, they remained divided over slavery. The Constitution they adopted permitted the holding of slaves, but over the strenuous objection of many Northerners. By 1804, while slavery flourished in the South, all Northern states had abolished it. The ideas of the American Revolution sank deep roots, the idea of equality, the idea that slavery was somehow a violation of the basic principles of the United States. But secondly, slavery was peripheral to the Northern economy. In other words, it could be abolished without disrupting the economic order, which was not the case in the South. And also, because it was fairly small scale, the slave-owning class was not that powerful. You didn't have a powerful class devoted to keeping slavery. So therefore, the anti-slavery movement encountered uh, less powerful opposition. Um, So it's a combination of things. Uh, But basically, I think the northern economy does not rest on slave labor the way the southern economy does. And therefore, abolition is much more possible as a path. There were a lot of business relations between the mercantile interests in the north and the plantation economy in the south. Absolutely. The north was, you know, Lincoln in his second inaugural address said, everybody knows slavery was the cause of the Civil War, but he called it American slavery, not Southern slavery. In other words, his point was the whole nation is complicitous in the institution of slavery. And yes, many of the profits of slavery flowed into the North. New York City, where I live and work, was deeply tied into the Southern economy. Um, New York merchants shipped the cotton to Europe. New York insurance companies insured the cotton and the slaves. And that's one of the reasons racism was so deep in the North. In other words, even though the North had abolished slavery, um, the ideology of slavery was still around pretty powerfully in the North because of the North's economic interest in the profitability of slavery. All my life, I've been making it all my life. White folks taking it, it's all hard. They's just breaking it. Ain't got a thing to show for what a dumb, dumb, but things get brighter. Don't get lighter. I'll keep on plugging away. America's regional conflicts over slavery produced continual clashes in Congress and in the courts during the years preceding the Civil War. Fugitive slave laws mandated that runaways to a free state be returned to their owner in a slave state. It was a policy that many Northerners regarded as immoral, but that many Southerners viewed as protecting their right to private property, in this case human property. The legal status of slaves became fuzzier as the nation's landmass expanded into territories that had not yet become states and were controlled by Congress. Historian Eric Foner. Dred Scott was owned by a physician who worked for the U.S. Army, and Dred Scott was taken by his owner from Missouri into the Northwest, into Illinois, where slavery was barred by state law, and then into Wisconsin Territory, no law, not yet a state, where slavery was prohibited by a law of Congress, which we call the Missouri Compromise, which prohibited slavery in that part of the old um, Louisiana Purchase. And then he was brought back to Missouri. Along the way, he married uh, Harriet Scott, and they had two daughters. 
in the mid to late 1840s, some abolitionists uh, told Dred Scott, look, the, the basic law is if, you, if a slave is taken into free territory, they become free. I'm not talking about escaping. If you're a fugitive, the Constitution says they got to send you back. But the general law by this time was slavery only extends to, within the borders of the state that has created it. So if you, uh, if you are voluntarily taken by your owner outside the state, you cease to be a slave. Permanently. Yeah, permanently. And there were many cases like this uh, in northern courts where an owner would take a slave along with him going somewhere and then he became free because there's no slavery in Illinois, so you can't be a slave there. So Dred Scott went to court and uh, claiming freedom on the grounds he had been taken by his owner and resided in free territory. Like many slaves, Dred Scott had a succession of owners. The family that owned him in Virginia, where he was born, relocated to Alabama and later to Missouri. There he was sold to a doctor serving in the U.S. Army who died a year later. Dred Scott is then passed to two more owners by the time his lawsuit reaches court. It's even more complicated because he's actually owned by the daughter of the previous owner, but she's a minor, so it's a kind of trust situation. But, you know, it's one of these legal things which is very hard to unravel. But nonetheless, the main point is Dred Scott claims to be free by virtue of having resided with the permission of his owner in a free state and in a free territory. The chief justice at the time was a rather dour-looking man named Roger Tawney. Roger Tawney of Maryland. Now, Tawney is an The Supreme Court had a majority of Southerners, slave owners. There were nine justices. Five of them were from the South, four from the North. Tawney is actually from a border state, Maryland, which does not secede from the Civil War. But Tawney is not a pro-slavery advocate. He, ha he had actually freed his own slaves at some point, and had act he was a colonizationist. He believed the idea was to get blacks out of the country to Africa, Liberia. That was his, that was his idea, that you didn't want blacks around, but slavery was wrong anyway, so the best solution is just get them all out. In the initial case in, in Missouri, the local Missouri court ruled in favor of Dred Scott because that was the precedent. But then um, Dred Scott's owners at that point appealed, and the Missouri Supreme Court ruled against Dred Scott, and basically they said, this is their like 1850, 51, they said, you know, uh, in the old days, Dred Scott would be entitled to his freedom, but you know, the slavery issue is really a big thing now, and we don't want to give any ammunition to Northerners. So forget it, Dred Scott, you have to remain a slave, because ruling in favor of Dred Scott would just encourage these abolitionists. That's not a very good legal doctrine, but that's pretty much what they said in the Missouri it's a, it's Supreme Court. It's a political Court. statement. Yeah, yeah, political statement. This case is, we got to defend slavery, and therefore Dred Scott's got to be a slave. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless
When the U.S. Supreme Court accepted Dred Scott's case in 1854, our federal legal system moved much more slowly than today. For one thing, many of the justices would have long absences from Washington as they traveled to hold hearings in various regions of the nation. It took three years to reach a decision in the Scott case as the high court wrestled with contentious legal issues. Historian Eric Foner. The first question is, is there a case at all? Is Dred Scott a citizen? And if not, because a lot of people said black people cannot be citizens in the United States, in which case there's no case. The court could have sidestepped it, as courts often do, by just saying there's no case here. Dred Scott is not a, ci a citizen, so he can't sue in federal court. So you're out. Tawney, the chief justice, he says, number one, no. Dred Scott is not a citizen. Why? You could say, well, he's a slave, so he can't be a citizen. But Tony says, no, no black person, this is the most famous part of the case, no black person can be a citizen. The Constitution is only for white people. And then in this famous or infamous aside, or what we call obertedictor, an offhanded comment, he says, you know, um, the founders, the people who wrote the Constitution, believed that the Negro has no rights which the white man is bound to respect. No rights. Thaddeus Stevens, the great radical Republican, later said in Congress, that statement damned Tawney to everlasting fame and everlasting fire. He would go to hell because of that statement. To defend Tawney, if one wants to, he was not saying that's what I believe. He was saying this is what the Founding Fathers believed. Tony's version of what America's founders believed was hotly contested. Abraham Lincoln later cited an entirely different set of facts, casting the founders as much more anti-slavery. Some historians today believe the truth lies somewhere in between. But it was the Chief Justice's interpretation of history that underpinned the legal ruling he authored. So, all right, what has been decided? Dred, Dred Scott's not free. He's a slave. Plus, his wife and daughters were also slaves. No black person can be a citizen of the United States. And third of all, Congress has no power to bar slavery in any Western territory. In other words, the principle, or the platform, that is, of the second major party, Republican Party, is unconstitutional. But I think the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court did that in the New Deal. They kept declaring New Deal laws unconstitutional, but eventually they kind of realized that the Supreme Court puts itself into a lot of trouble if it is continually overturning the will of the majority. As expressed through Congress. As expressed through Congress. So in the, 18th, in the 1930s, they retreated eventually and decided to let the New Deal go forward. And um, Justice Roberts, I, I can't read his mind, but I have a feeling that uh, when he voted with the more liberal members to uphold Obamacare, he did not want the Supreme Court put in that position of being a direct player in partisan politics, you know. But that was a line that Roger Tony, as Tony crossed Chief Justice over. in the 1850s, crossed. He crossed it, and five other members of the court crossed it also. Now, this court case is handed down in March 1857, right after the president, Buchanan, is inaugurated. Buchanan's from Pennsylvania. Tawney, before—this is quite unusual or irregular—before the decision is announced, Tawney gets in touch with Buchanan, president-elect, and says, you know, we got this decision coming. 
I don't think it would look good if the decision was five guys from the South against four guys from the North. It would not look particularly legitimate. Why don't you try to persuade Justice Greer from Pennsylvania, your state, to go along with the Southern majority? And Buchanan does that. Buchanan basically says to Greer, look, uh, you got to vote with the, and he does. So it becomes six to three on these key issues. Uh, but that's rather improper, one would say, for the president-elect to tell a member of the Supreme Court how he ought to be voting, right? And for the chief justice to, to solicit yeah, that exactly. intervention by the president-elect. We're talking with Eric Foner, Columbia University professor of history. His book on Abraham Lincoln, The Fiery Trial, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011. You're listening to a Humankind special, Justice Denied. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this fascinating chapter of American history, please visit humanmedia.org. While the Supreme Court majority ruled in 1857 that Dred Scott must remain a slave, there was a vigorous dissenting opinion. It was authored by Justice Benjamin Curtis of Massachusetts and joined by fellow Justice John McLean of Ohio. They disputed the majority's account of the role played by blacks when America was founded. Eric Foner. They just argued from history. First of all, black people had been recognized as citizens at the time. In fact, black men voted in the elections to elect delegates to conventions that ratified the Constitution. There weren't a lot of them, but in many states at that that time, free blacks had the right to vote if they met the property qualification. So how can you say that the founders didn't believe they were citizens when, in fact, they helped to determine what happened with the Constitution? So they said the history is wrong here. Secondly, they said there was a long tradition of Congress prohibiting slavery in the territories. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787 did it right at the time the Constitution was being written. The Missouri Compromise, the other measures had been passed. They said this is ridiculous. This is a new principle being established by the Supreme Court. It overturns 75 years of legislation, and it will exacerbate sectional conflict. It will not solve it, as Tawney seems to think. So they they just said the logic of the court was completely wrong. It was partisan. Now, they are two Northerners, and they said this is just pro-slavery ideology being written into the decision of the Supreme Court. Abolitionists were incensed by the court's majority ruling, which not only affirmed but also expanded the right to hold slaves. To this day, many legal experts regard the Dred Scott decision as the most shameful in Supreme Court history. Chief Justice Tawney viewed his legal opinion as a sweeping act of jurisprudence. It was intended to finally resolve the conflict over slavery that had divided the nation from its founding. He appeared to have grossly miscalculated. Benjamin Curtis, who wrote the dissenting opinion, was appalled at the majority's overreach. He resigned soon afterwards. Not that day, but soon afterwards, Curtis resigned from the Supreme Court And many people said it was disgust over the Dred Scott decision that led him to resign. Now, an interesting fact about Curtis, he's obviously an anti-slavery guy. In 1862, 
when people are talking about emancipation coming, and there's an argument, does the president, under the war power of the Constitution, have the power to liberate the slaves? Curtis wrote a little pamphlet saying no. Curtis opposed the Emancipation Proclamation on legal grounds. He said there is nothing in the Constitution that gives the president the power to do this. So he obviously did not tailor his legal opinions to his kind of moral or political sentiments. Is that unique in American history for a Supreme Court justice to step down in disgust over a rule? I, I would think it is. I can't think of any other one. I, I, I suppose, you know, uh, first of all, people don't resign from the Supreme Court very frequently. I think he felt the court is under the control of the South. It's under the control of slave owners. There's no place for me here. And I, yeah, he was disgusted. So yeah, it is unusual. Absolutely. At the time of the Dred Scott ruling, how strong was the abolitionist movement? Well, you have to distinguish between abolitionism and anti-slavery. Abolitionism was always a small movement. It was very vocal, very active, and it played an important role in generating public sentiment against slavery. We know from our own time, a group like the Tea Party, for example, you don't have to be a majority of the country to kind of change the public agenda. That's what the abolitionists try to do. But, they, you know, the problem with the abolitionists was they believed in racial equality. And that was not exactly a popular view in the North. Many, many people who didn't like slavery were not going to go along with the abolitionists in making blacks equal members of society. Did the Supreme Court decision galvanize public sentiment against slavery? Absolutely. I think the Supreme Court decision, Tawney thought they would solve the whole problem right there, but it didn't have that effect at all. First of all, it completely outraged Republicans in the North of every kind, moderate, conservative, radical, abolition, doesn't matter. It further reinforced Republican charges that what they called the slave power had taken control of the federal government. The slave power, the organized political power of slavery now evidently controlled the Supreme Court as well as the presidency, since Buchanan was very pro-slavery, and um, the Senate, not the House of Representatives, but the Senate. So it certainly didn't mollify Republican opposition. And then it had the effect of widening the gap because when Southerners said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, we now have a right to take slavery into these territories, the Supreme Court said, but Northerners are not are saying they're going to resist that right. So it further widens the gap between the sections. The North says the South is in control of the government. The South says Northerners are not willing to respect our constitutional rights. So it further inflames what is already a pretty uh, tense situation. It might not be quite accurate to suggest the Supreme Court's radical decision in the Dred Scott case precipitated the Civil War, which erupted four years later when southern states began seceding from the Union upon the election of Republican Abraham Lincoln to the presidency. But the ruling certainly raised the emotional temperature of America's long-simmering argument over whether a nation founded with the proclamation that all men are created equal could permit slavery in its borders. Certainly for the Republicans, it, it made it seem even more pressing to get a Republican elected in 1860, because otherwise the control of the federal government by the slave power would be permanent, would be irreversible. That's what they said. That's one of the reasons Lincoln is nominated in 1860, because he is electable. 
He's by no means the most prominent Republican, but for- Only the tallest. He's the tallest, maybe the most eloquent, but he's the guy who can win. He comes from a key swing state. Seward, his rival, is considered too radical, may not carry all the northern states. And I think um, under other circumstances, Seward might have gotten the nomination. But the Dred Scott decision helps to create this intense desire to win right now. And, you know, many northern states repudiated it. Several northern legislatures said, we, we don't accept this. I think there was a case in Maine. Maine, the legislature. Where, where the legislature passed a resolution declaring that the Dred Scott ruling was not binding, which right. is pretty strong for well, a legislature you know, it's, to say it's, it's a an ruling irony. of the Supreme Court right. is not binding. Well, it's an irony because the notion of nullification that a state can nullify something done by the federal government was generally associated with the South, right? John C. Calhoun, South Carolina. Now there are Northerners using that same language. The, the ruling was handed down more than three years before Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated as president. Right. He weighed in on the Dred Scott case at the time. Lincoln gave a, a number of speeches, but one particularly soon after, a late March, I think, um, in which he again said it. You know, Lincoln was a pretty good lawyer, among other things, and he just took it apart. And he, he, he took apart the notion that blacks could never be citizens again. You know, Lincoln also had this deep sense of history. He had studied, in many of his speeches, he cites the founding fathers on slavery frequently. When the chief justice ruled that Dred Scott was not a citizen and thus had no rights mm -hmm. even to bring his lawsuit, let alone to enjoy mm -hmm freedoms other people are allowed. He touched the core question of what constitutes citizenship in mm -hmm. our democracy. And in fact, uh, the legal scholars point out the Constitution never explicitly defines the role of a citizen. There's no actual a paragraph in the Constitution that says, here's what a citizen is and until what a after the, Until the 14th Amendment, which does that after the Civil War. But you, the point is correct. The, const the original Constitution mentions citizens. It even mentions the privileges and immunities of citizens. But it doesn't say who citizens are, and it doesn't say what those privileges and immunities actually consist of. So, and Lincoln himself was rather ambiguous about this. On the one hand, in some of his speeches, he seemed to say that blacks were citizens, but then else, other times he said, no, I, I'm not in favor of black people being citizens, and in Illinois, I don't think they should be citizens. Uh, but what he said is, I don't think the Constitution prohibits making black people citizens if a state wants to do that, or if the federal government wants to recognize them. So he took a kind of middle ground there. He, didn't, he was not an abolitionist who affirmed the rights of blacks. Now, his views evolved dramatically during the Civil War. I think by the end of his life, Lincoln had certainly accepted the idea of black citizenship. In fact, in 1862, his attorney general, Edward Bates, issues in a ruling basically saying the Supreme Court was wrong. Free black people, not slaves, free blacks are citizens, absolutely. We're gonna recognize all free black people as citizens in the United States. And the Supreme Court just made a big mistake there and we don't have to listen to it. And do you think this was a genuine shifting of sentiment oh, by absolutely. Abraham Lincoln? Absolutely, I think so. The struggle against slavery, the role particularly of black soldiers, 200,000 of them in the Army and Navy in the last two years of the war, I think changed Lincoln's view. You know, if black men are willing to fight and die for the nation, how can you say they're not citizens of the nation? 
So I think by the end of his life, Lincoln def Lincoln was talking about giving some blacks the right to vote by the end of his life. So the question of citizenship, I think, was settled in his mind during the war. But then the question is, what rights come along with being a citizen? For example, women are citizens, but they don't have the right to vote at this time. So it's not quite clear what being a citizen actually entitles you to. A question that continues to Absolutely. That's perplex still on, the nation to still this Still on our agenda. Eric Foner is the Dewitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University and author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Fiery Trial. President Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation in the fall of 1862. He then championed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which outlawed slavery. It was passed by Congress 10 weeks before Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. April 15, 1865. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston and Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Justice Denied, Part 2, is Humankind Program number 188. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.